Welcome to episode 65 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good. How about yourself? Yeah, very good. So we missed a podcast this week, which is my fault. Okay, what happened? Tell us about it. Well, you know, we were supposed to um, interview Jessica Ma from Indonero. Yeah. And we've, we interviewed her before. I think it was like back in like November or something. And she recently, um, her company, Indonero, graduated from Y Combinator. And they've had a lot of success in raising money um, after their demo day, their Y Combinator demo day. Oh, okay. And we saw her, uh, there were some write-ups on TechCrunch and all over Hacker News. And I was like, wow, this is going to be perfect timing, right? Everyone's going to be like, who's this, you know, what's this Indonero company? And we'll have the interview. So you were out of town in New Hampshire working with um, MyVibo, right? That's right, yeah. And so it was up to me to record it. Now, I had... And we'll get into this later, but I had my my Windows machine died, and I had to get a new machine, and I bought an iMac, and I couldn't, I didn't have any recording software for that that I knew how to use or anything. So I said, I will use CallBurner, um, which I had working on the Windows machine. I tried to install it on my uh, laptop, and it just wouldn't work. Oh. So after about a half hour of trying to get things to work, I just told Jessica, I said, look, you know, I'm sorry, but <laughs> we'll just have to wait next week until somebody a little more competent with the audio can. <laughs> can deal with this so uh she was so she of was course cool. a week later it's going to be old news that they've uh, raised the 1.5 million yeah well we can get into that well there's gonna be a whole bunch of i think interesting stuff to talk about with y combinator and her uh, her wild ride but um yeah so i put to our guests i apologize that we uh, skipped yet another week because we missed a week there a couple weeks ago with uh, travis kalanick because when we set up the interview he was still in europe and we were speaking over the uh, over skype and i said hey can we do it like you know, Tuesday at three or whatever. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But I never sent him a follow-up email confirming that. And then he, you know, I, he didn't remember exactly the time and date we said, so it didn't work out. So, well, at least that one wasn't our fault. Yeah. Well, sort of my fault, right? I mean, you know, when you, <laughs> when you schedule an interview, you really should send an email confirming it with your guest. You know, you don't leave it up to them to remember exactly. And especially if they're traveling in your, in uh, Eastern Europe. <laughs> right. So that was my fault. Well, you know, there's an old saying that I like, which is, if you look at a problem closely, closely enough, you'll usually discover that you are part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think both, both of those are clearly my fault. Um, the, the second one with audio, I should have, the day or two days before, I should have tried to install the software and run some tests. But I was so busy um, that I just kind of kicked it to the curb until it was like an hour before. I was like, okay, I better install the software, and I just could get it going. So have you been able to get your Mac, um, the vocals working on your Mac, or are you now calling from your, from a PC? I'm calling from a PC because the um, microphone input isn't working. Um, now, I may need to buy some new hardware. You said I'd, I'd probably need to buy like an actual USB um, input. Yeah, it, it, re- it requires some kind of preamp to get the audio input into the Mac. Yeah, so it, the, your regular line in, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it should work because, you know, you have, I have the standard audio, the two inputs, the head, the one for, you know, in, out, audio out and audio in. Yeah. Um, and it has those plugs in the, in the iMac and plug them in. But it well, the, the plug fits, but as far as I'm aware, it requires some kind of preamp uh, power source before, it, before the Mac can actually pick it up. It's not expecting a completely unpowered uh, system. Right, right. Well, you know, before we get into the iMac, because I want to get into the iMac as a topic, because um, I think it might be kind of interesting, but I, one thing I want to point out is even with those two missing shows, um, 
we hit the 500 mark um, just today. So our, our goal at the beginning of summer is we wanted, the initial goal was to get 500 downloads of a discussion show within a week. Okay. I got a little more aggressive and I said, oh, we're going to blow that away. Let's shoot for 500 within two days, 48 hours. Right. Uh, we didn't quite hit that. We hit, we, we, after 48 hours, usually around 400 or 420, but uh, hitting 500 within a week was the initial goal and we actually just hit that. So that's pretty cool. That is excellent. Considering we were, considering I think back like March or something, it would take like two weeks before we got like 220 or something downloads. Well, it's funny because it looks to me like um, the the tide is shifting a little bit because it's almost like our discussion shows are picking up a little bit more than some of the um, the interview shows. Yeah, I, I, you know, well, I, I think I think the I think in terms of which is more popular, it probably depends on our guest, yeah. you know, or the topic, and it probably just depends on people's moods. You know, sometimes people are, are in the mood for just, you know, a quick a discussion show covering a bunch of little topics and sometimes they're really interested in getting to do an interview and it, it probably, you know, waxes. I guess the discussion, the, a discussion show is more like kind of easy listening versus an interview show, which is a little bit more like learning. It's intense. I just yeah. like, like, for instance, like for no agenda or this week in tech or these things where they're just kind of talking for like a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Like I can actually work with that song because I'm kind of not really listening very closely. But if you go to like a Mixergy show and you listen to Andrew Warner interviewing some entrepreneur for an hour, hour, hour and a half. I mean, it's like I can't listen to it because it's distracting me too much. Yeah. Do you, I, do you I, mind being backgrounded like that by people listening? How does that, how does that hurt your ego? <laughs> No, I'm being backgrounded <laughs> by that all the time. You're backgrounding like half the time. You weren't our recording the podcast. You're probably backgrounding me right now. <laughs> My whole life is backgrounded. <laughs> I need to. I need. There needs to be some kind of thing. You know, like in in a process, you can set the priority. Right. You need to be able to like go into people and say, "Look, I am your first priority. You may not background me. You may not text anyone. You may not check your email." <laughs> Otherwise, I'm leaving. Just right-hand click on them and select the priority. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. That's All right. I, so, you got any topics for us this week? Well, I first, I guess, well, one thing I think would be kind of fun to talk about is so I got an iMac. Okay. Now, I've, now my Windows machine was sort of on its deathbed for the past month or so. I, it started crashing, and sometimes it wouldn't start, and it took like an hour or two before I could get it to start again, which is really weird. It's almost like a car when you're turning the ignition, and it, go, and it makes that kind of weird sound, but it won't, the engine won't turn over. And you think it's auto-almost start, but then it won't. And you, if you, but if you don't flood the engine, sometimes you can get it to start. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's happened to me on old cars that I've had you know, years ago. But that situation was happening on my Windows PC. Like, it wasn't completely dead, but sometimes if I just kept trying to restart, eventually it would restart. Right. Well, eventually, on Monday morning, I mean, it just completely died. It wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't turn on. I, I, remember I, left, I, went, I let an hour or two go by, and I couldn't get started. So I'm like, All right, well, i got to go get a new machine. And, you know, after speaking with you and my, my couple of friends of mine who are also technical and are also... Um, They've made the Mac conversion. Yeah, you know, they, you know, my buddy Dave Kovar, who's a listener, and Phil, who's a listener, who you've also met, um, Phil Amen, who, you know, he, he got an iMac. And everybody said, oh, yeah, man, you know, you should just go ahead and get a Mac because they're awesome, right? And the other reason I was thinking I'd be getting a Mac was that, you know, if I want to do any consulting work and build any iPhone or iPad apps, use Titanium, yeah. then, I need, um, then I need a Mac. I mean, I guess theoretically you could do a Hackintosh, but that just seems like kind of a pain in the butt. So just, we're, we're all waiting with bated anticipation. Like, what's, how's it going? I regret it. 
No yeah. way. I regret it. Why? Regret it. it was a mistake. I don't understand. Um, Explain. Okay. So, well, first of all, um, there's, there's lots of little things that I'll say that I don't like that I'm not crazy. Like, first of all, the keyboard, I hate. The little tiny keyboard. It's really pretty. There's like, the iMac comes with this really cool, looks like a little Bang & Olsen kind of, Olsen kind of designed thing. Have you seen the new iMac? Now, of course, you wouldn't have that small keyboard if you'd taken my advice and got the MacBook Pro. But anyway. Yeah, last thing I want to do is, is be crunched over some little tiny laptop all day. That's great. Okay, right. That's but but you, you can switch out the keyboard. It, it, yeah, like, that's yeah well, no, I did. I tried to because, you know, they have you, your Control-C, Control-V, Control-Z, all the kind of stuff that I do all day long when I'm, uh, when I'm coding. Because yeah. I'm not a touch typist. I'm not like a super fast touch typist, so I do a lot of Control-C, Control-V. You know, where I know some people, like I'll be coding with uh, Guyon, and he prefers to type. As, as opposed to cutting and pasting. <laughs> oh, no, I, I mean, I, I do that, but you, that takes a couple of weeks to get used to, but then... Yeah, I, I, just, I just couldn't... I mean, it, was in, in like, it doesn't have a home or an end key, um, and the, uh, there's a couple other little things that just didn't work, and I'm just like... Well, what do you use the end key for, to, to scroll down a page or to get uh, to the... No, I use home and end when I'm, on a, I'm editing on a line, right? Go yeah, that's just, just use command and shift. I mean, same, same deal. Yeah, but it's just it's it's annoying. It's just it's it's like I have to hit two keys now, and my my fingers aren't used to it. Right now, I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm not trying to make some objective judgment between like iMacs and Windows. I'm saying for me, right, right. right. It's like you know, where do I choose to live? I live in Pasadena, California. I know a lot of people live in New York City who love it who would never live in California, right? Okay. But I wouldn't live in New York City. You couldn't pay me to live there. So, but that's just a personal choice. And uh, I think the keyboard's one of those things, right? My hands are used to a certain format, and I'm, you know, of the keyboard, a certain layout, and it's really frustrating. So I, I committed an apostasy, probably, and I hooked up my Dell keyboard to the iMac. And no, I was that's like, no problem. Oh. But, you know, that, that was one of the things that was really irritating because I, I felt it was so awkward. It was just slowing me down. I could, it, was like my, my, it was like my mind, there was too much that was too different. I did. In fact, that's that's exactly what I did when I got my Mac. First thing I did was plugged it into the big monitor and my old PC keyboard, and I set it up so that I, so that the keys would work the same as I was used to. Yeah. On the did PC. you switch the, the command and the uh, yeah. key? I reverses. Yeah. I inverted those two. I went to the preferences and inverted that, and that got me a little better. Now you can still the home and end key don't work in most applications, even on my right. Dell. You still have to use. You still have to do like control left arrow control. I'm right. sure there's an app somewhere that will that will tie it all together for you. Well. I got well, okay. Well, let's. So we go to another thing. So the keyboard was obviously that's one issue. But you know, the one thing I described, I was kind of comparing it to the to Sandy the other day. It was like it's like let's say that you you know you're from the U.S. You're from some city that's let's say Fresno. Let's just pick a random city. Okay, it's not known as some awesome city. It's just a you know some random city. If you went to move to Paris, you'd be like, oh wow, Paris is awesome. Right. But then after a day, you'd be like, hey, wait a minute. Nobody speaks English here. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And uh, I want to get a, I want to get some tacos. Wait a minute. I can't I can't get any tacos. You know, it's like all of a sudden it becomes very foreign and frustrating because you can't do the things easily that you're used to doing. Um, it would be hard to argue with a lot of people that 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 Fresno is a is nearly as beautiful or as exciting of a city but if you're used to being in Fresno and you know how to live and get around there throughout the day very comfortably and then you get stuck into some foreign city that you're not comfortable in it can be very frustrating and, and how long have you had it now since Monday so just a little uh, yeah well. okay so just 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 to say this I felt a hundred percent exactly the same as you at the stage that you're at right and it wasn't until at least two months into it that I got to the point where now I would never go back. 
Like mm. it's you just have it's one of those things where you just have to chip away at each little thing bit by bit. So first of all, chip at chip away at the, the keys and just the general working environment. The thing is, it's it feels very foreign because as you're moving around, things aren't where you expect they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But honestly, you can you can put in those little customizations, and as as time goes on, you realize that it it has so much more flexibility. Like for example, one of the things is, um, if you know when you click on the Finder, right? right. Mm-hmm. You know you know the little thing that says places, right? You know on the left hand side. Yep. Yeah. Have you started using that yet? I have not. I don't even. I'm not even sure what that is. Okay. What does that do? Okay, basically, click on the Finder. Are you in front of your Mac now? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. click on the Finder, and in the left-hand nav, there's devices and places and search for, right? Yep, yep. So under places, it's got your name, and then it's got desktop applications. Yep. So you can drag any folder into that, and then from then whenever you do an open dialog, you'll instantly have access to that folder. Okay. Right? And that's, for example, that's one thing that is an absolute pain if you don't understand it and don't know how to do it, because you're constantly rooting through the machine, trying to find the files, trying to find the directories. But once you just know that you can drop them into that places and drag them out of that places thing, then yeah. you can instantly get access to them and your whole workflow speeds up like a million percent. Yeah, so I, 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 um, I that's what the first few couple days was just really frustrating because, you, first of all, not having Windows Explorer, I, I find it really frustrating not to have that kind of layout. Like the Finder just seems so, so much less powerful without having the, the, the tree view with the detail views on the right. Right. Moving stuff around, having the finder, I'm like, I feel like I'm in Kidland. I can't even see any information. And um, I, I, you know, like I said, I'm sure some people much prefer and could make an argument for why it's better. And for some reason, I personally can't stand it. And I actually downloaded something called Microsoft uh, or, or Macintosh Explorer, which is kind of like reproduces sort of that look and feel, or at least that behavior. Yeah, for the Mac, and I'm experimenting with that, but that's not perfect either. Um, the the other thing that I was finding frustrating was that. The um, finding a text editor. So on the Mac, on the on Windows, I used HapEdit, which was this old kind of crappy freeware, you know, uh, text editor that would highlight, you know, whatever language you could customize the uh, syntax highlighting, whether it was Python or yeah. HP I mean, the, the te- I know what you're going to say. The text editor, I feel the same way. It completely sucks. sucks. I mean, you can't even you can't even customize the syntax highlighting for different languages. I mean, give me a break. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm, it's I'm, I'm just waiting for Ultra Ultra Edit to come out because Ultra, yeah. Ultra Edit is nearly there and Ultra Edit is the best text editor on the planet. Well, I hope so, so what- because text may <laughs> just... I mean, just the, that fact sucks because I was, set, I was trying to set the colors and then it was like, well, wait a minute, it looks okay. For, I got it. So it's like 90% of the way there in PHP, but then it's all screwed up in JavaScript. Don't you think that left-hand nav draw thing is so freaking unintuitive? Yeah, I'm not like, that crazy about it either. I mean, it's like, how do you, you know, how do you resize it? Like, even the resizing of it's weird. Like, you, you know, you have to kind of drag it by its left hand side in and out. It's, yeah, it's just like I mean, that's that's you know, for me, I'm even more forgiving about stuff like that. I'm just saying, ah, whatever. I mean, all I want, all I wanted was a text editor that would allow me to customize the way the syntax is highlighted for the different languages I program in. Because at the very at the very minimum, it's going to be PHP, C, um, PHP JavaScript, um, HTML, CSS, at a minimum. And I'd also like to be able to do you know, a few other languages, but just for starters there, I couldn't even get that to work. And I'm just like, this is annoying. So I tried Text Wrangler, you know, even BBEdit. Text Wrangler is like a free version of BBEdit. Neither of those did the syntax highlighting across languages. I finally, after trying like five or, I don't know, maybe eight different editors, 
I finally um, settled on Komodo Edit. Do you know what Komodo is? No, I haven't tried that. No. There's a company called Active State, and they have they create these, um, you know, kind of like commercial versions of like Eclipse, like an integrated development environment that works for multiple different languages, and it's pretty powerful. It's also pretty expensive, but they have a, they have their IDE, but they also have their Edit version, which is free. Yeah. And that and that allows you to set customizations on a language by language basis for syntax highlighting. So I'm using that temporarily, but I'm I'm also thinking about looking at Eclipse. You, well. the, the key is you you can't you can't just expect it to be like Windows. Like you have to explore what it can do. You just have to explore it and um, look for <sighs> for the kind of cool features. And but you know don't go into like huge big sessions every day. Just do a little bit every day. Yeah, well, and I've been doing all day. I'm, like, here's what I'm saying. Uh, the, th- the thing is, is that for the things that I do, um, I'm just wanted, I just wanted to get up and get productive, and it just really took a big hit all week. I mean, it took me like – I mean, I really wasn't productive for the first four days. I mean, I'm trying to find an FTP client. I'm trying to call a, a subversion client. Did you use Transmit? Did you, you, and the other thing is, why the hell didn't you just get in contact with me? Because I've like done this exact same move and found the best products already. Well, yeah, remember we, we talked to you. You were um, – you were in uh, New Hampshire and busy in session right. with those guys. You were, I didn't want to interrupt you. I mean, sure, you were busy. So, okay. you know, I don't want to lean on anyone unless I absolutely have. I mean, Transmit, I found, was a very good um, FTP program. Well, I find the FileZilla was, is free. Oh, yeah, that's good. That works. I don't yeah. think it's awesome or anything, but at least it was familiar. I'd, I'd used it before. Uh, Guyon had preferred it to the one we used on Windows, so we used it for a while. Um, because he was interested in it. So I knew how to use it. And I was like, okay, this is fine. Did you and put in um, OpenOffice yet? No. I, okay, I definitely recommend that because OpenOffice is, to be honest, it's brilliant. It it basically does everything you need from Office. Okay. And it's well, maybe, I'll look, maybe I'll look into it. I, so I, the other ones were, so there was the, so the text editing, was just, it was a fiasco. Finally, I found Komodo Edit. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, the the subversion client, which you have to buy, which is uh, you know about Cornerstone. I tried about. Oh it. no, yeah, not Cornerstone! Oh, I wish you'd have discussed this with me. Which one do you prefer? Oh, versions. I bought them both and did a lot of testing and versions. Well, I haven't bought it. I'm just using the trial right okay, now. Okay, great, great, great. Okay, get well, ver- versions is the one to use. Cornerstone, just for me, there's there's been issues. It it screwed up repositories. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Versions is just has a has a slightly easier to use interface. I was really hoping for uh, Tortoise. I mean, I really like I like it integrated <laughs> into Windows Explorer when I can just yeah. right click and say commit or right click update or right click and then just open up window. But you have to have this whole other app running, which is annoying. Well, what you get with here's the, here's the thing: what you get with um, SmartGit is basically as good as Tortoise, whereas Versions and Work and uh, Cornerstone are like a step down. They really feel like a separate app. For some reason, the way that SmartGit does it when you're using it, it just feels very, very natural, and it feels as good as Tortoise. But then you'd have to also move to Git, the Git repository, which is also another move. So. Another big, yeah. Yeah, well, see, it's like a lot of these things where it's like sometimes you change because it really makes life better, and sometimes you're changing just for change's sake, and all it does is make you slow things down. And, um, you know, so I'm, I obviously have a lot of, I've had a lot of frustration, and I'm like, you know, this is buying a... Um, you know, buying an iMac is fairly expensive, right? I mean, it was like twenty after tax. I think it was like twenty two hundred or something. Yeah. You know, and in retrospect, if I had to do it over again, I would have just replaced the board in my machine and just spent like five hundred bucks or three hundred bucks and just done that. Just said screw it. I'm I'm interested to have this discussion with you after about three months. I've got a feeling you'll have a very different perspective. 
Yeah. Well, I yeah. guess we'll see. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just kind of regretting. I'm just like, oh, you know, what a waste of money. And all it's done is, is just sucked hours and hours and hours out of my time. And it hasn't really done it. I mean, yeah, the, the 27 inch screen is pretty, but I had two flat, two 20 inch screens, which was even more real yeah, estate. But you have full access for making, you know, for making iPhone and iPad apps. Yeah, I guess we'll see if that happens. I mean, how much? The, the other thing that's really nice about it, and once again, this is just what you ex- explore as time goes on. Well, it, it, if you set up a local environment, I mean, it's so perfect to have a local environment on a Mac because it's Unix, right? Mm-hmm. So if you set your stuff up all, all locally, you can work it really, really well. Like that will definitely kind of push you forward. Yeah, that was actually the next topic I was going to bring up. So before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. I mean, one thing I would say, though, you can do that on Windows, though, right? You can do it on Windows, but you can it's run just Apache and MySQL and PHP it, on Windows. It's not the same as actually having a full Unix command line and basically having everything the same on your local machine as on the external server. So you can use all of the tools in exactly the same way. And it's just it's just not as seamless. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, you can put it, you can have it all on there, but it's very very seamless when you do it on the Mac that way. Okay. Well, I'll. I'll um, so you know, to move on. So uh, <laughs> in terms of the VPS, I also want to bring up this more topic, this other topic, because you just pretty much touched on it. Yeah. Which is that. So today, I, I, I you know, was going to spend the, you know, good part, good half the day, just getting some good work done on Epic Night, and now my FTP server's down. On my, uh, I have, a, I have a virtual private server at my yeah. this web host called A2 Hosting, and um, you know, I couldn't get it. And I tried to, re- I rebooted it, and then I tried uh, re- having it reinstall the system files and all this stuff, and you know, it just wouldn't work. And not only that, but some of my HD access, some of the, I guess, some of the settings where it would um, create like a almost like a virtual subdirectory, mm-hmm. that didn't work either. And that's uh, WebDAV, I think, is it? Yeah, I'm not exactly. I'm not exactly sure, and it, uh, you know. So I tried to contact customer service, and they've always generally been pretty helpful. Like they have like a little live chat on their website, and usually you can just say, "Hey, you know, this, this is going on," and usually a couple back and forth to like they'll SSH into your into your uh, account, and maybe oh, just this needs to happen. But I got it, and I got the for the first time. Their 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 uh, customer support was like, "Yeah, you're a virtual private server. We don't. You're, you have to administrate it yourself." And so they re- would refuse to help at all. And so I spent like a couple hours trying to figure out what was going on. And, you know, I'm not a Linux admin, so it was just an exercise in frustration. So because of that, I, um, I started setting up a local environment. To, so I installed, I got Apache turned on, which, which is installed with, you know, with the OS 10, with OS 10 and uh, PHP and uh, got that. that. That's installed as well. So it's just a matter of like sort of configuring it and then um, getting MySQL installed. Did so, you... Did you consider MAMP? I don't know what MAMP is. What's MAMP? So basically MAMP is um, it's a bundle that's built specially for the Mac and you just run an installer and it installs everything all in the same directory. It's a, it's a different installation than the one that comes with the Mac. Mm. But it's, it's quite nice because um, it gives you a bunch of other, to- other useful dev tools uh, along with um, a nice, uh, you know, the My App, the PHP MyAdmin edit things so you can look at your databases and change them and all that. It's quite a nice little system. I mean, it's, I think it's good that you've actually configured stuff from scratch. I think that anyone should know how to install stuff from scratch. But once you've got used to that, it might be considering switching to the map. I was thinking maybe... Yeah, I probably a- won't. I hate installing configuring software. I find it to be such an annoying waste of time. And that's what's kind of nice about MAP because it does it yeah. all instantly. So once I get this working, I can guarantee I'm not going to be installing it again. <laughs> I almost guarantee you that won't be happening. If I get this thing up and run it, PHP, a bicycle running, and I'm, I'm on, and I can actually replicate stuff, I'm just 
it. Okay, well, here's the deal. If you, if you haven't finished installing it, you can use MAMP and you'll have it done within a minute. Okay. Well, you know, in terms of the tools for database, I, another, another tool that I needed to find was a, uh, a SQL client. Um, you know, my, my PHP, my admin is like, it's fine if you're doing a few little things, but if you're doing a lot of heavy work, you need something that's, that's a, that's a, you know, much more. So you just use MySQL tools, right? No, I used, um, I, before I had something on the on Windows called SQL Yog. I mean, it's okay. kind of like, if you ever use SQL Server, it's like SQL, like Enterprise Manager. Right. Have you ever done anything, ever used anything like that? Yep. I, yeah, so I, uh, SQL Yog is, I don't know, some 40 or $50 program that I had. It was okay. And I got something called Quarius. Which is kind of a similar thing, and um, you know, I, I think I th- I'm using the trial version. I think I'll have to ultimately buy it for like fifty or sixty bucks, but that's decent. Just so use MySQL tools; they're completely free, and they they give you everything you need. Like Do basically, they? MySQL have have great clients, query browsers, administration systems. I wasn't crazy about it when I tried it three or four years ago. It was kind of like this, you know, craplet, like this Java craplet that was really ugly. Well, th- in four years, they should have improved a little bit, right? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> some of these some of these UIs don't often improve or, or change very much. I just hadn't, hadn't looked at it. Okay, but uh, yeah, so I've been part of like in configuration installation hell for the past week. Whether it's been for the iMac or or whether it's for been for uh, you know my you know trying to replicate my VPS because I can't get this VPS started and they're not gonna they're they're refusing any customer support. So now I'm thinking, you know, well, what am I gonna do? You know, with that, I mean, I, 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 there's only so many hours that I can sink into screwing around with that right, Linux yeah. crap. And so, I don't know. It's funny because I just sold, I had an old rack mount server that's like three, about three years old. Yeah. And yeah, about three years old or maybe a little older. And I just sold it on Craigslist a couple days ago. It was like a Core 2 quad, you know, I just sold it for like 200 bucks. <laughs> right. It was old and, and it was just been sitting, it's literally been sitting in my office for a year and a half doing nothing. Because I kept meaning to sell it, but I just kept not getting around to it. And uh, so now it's like, oh, I wish I had that because maybe I just take and just co-locate it. It's like, because if I have to deal with all the Linux crap, if this company, if A2 Hosting is not going to do any help when stuff goes down, then I might as well just co-locate a server, right? Because, because the VPS isn't that powerful. It's kind of sluggish. It's clearly, I'm clear, clearly sharing a lot of resources with other web, uh, web apps. I mean, that's the nice thing about the Rackspace um, sites is that, they will support you to that kind of a level that you're talking about. The only bad thing is, is that you, you're kind of sharing a machine. I mean, it's caused me problems, but ultimately, I'm kind of glad that I'm on that system. Yeah, I was wondering because you know the guy I sold the the server to is funny. He got, he uh, saw a guy named Henderson. His name was Henderson. Yeah, he actually listened, made listen to this episode because I I suggested he check out the podcast. Uh-huh. And we ended up hang, we ended up like talking for like a while. You know, he. He uh, he's like, yeah. Well, why are you selling this? I'm like, ah, you know, it's just sitting here doing nothing. He's uh, and I asked him, I said, well, isn't it easier to just like use like a managed server? And he's like, ah, you know, I'll co-locate this. It'll cost me twenty five dollars a month for the space, and you know, it'll cost me much more. Maybe with the bandwidth and and um, and uh, I don't power cost me forty dollars a month. And he's like, it'll pay for itself in six months. And uh, I was like, you know, so I think I'm like, man, that might have been a smart thing to do. <laughs> I already had the server, but, <laughs> but now you it's just gone. sold it to him. <laughs> so now I'm like, dude, I sold my server. I got rid of my win. I sold my monitors, my flat panel monitors for my things. So and now I'm like, you know, I'm committed, right? Now How much that. did you make back from the sale of the server and the monitors? Uh, the server I sold for 200 and the uh, and part of the reason the server the, a couple of the rails were bent and you right. know I just been sitting there for a year and a half you know it was a three year old machine so 
I don't know how much you can get out of it. I, and it was just, we put it on Craigslist, and Sandy did some research on it. And she said, it looks like these are selling for around 200 250 And so I said, let's just get rid of it, you know, get it out of the and office. And the monitors? The monitors are like six years old, and I sold them for both of them together, 110 Okay, so, because so I was just trying to work out whether you got anything back against that two grand that you spent on the Mac, but not too much then by the sounds of things. No, no. Like I said, if, if, if I was talking to myself <laughs> a week right. ago, a week ago, I would have just let buy a new board and uh, close down your A2's, A2 hosting VPS account because it's crap and uh, go collate the server. Go collate the server downtown for 25 bucks or 40 bucks. Uh, I think, what, what do you think about the idea of uh, maybe us spending a couple of hours and I'll just go through some of the Mac stuff with you. Would you, would that be useful to you or are you not It would interested? be, but I, you know, if I, I want, and if you're busy, I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, calm down. Cause the other thing is, is, um, we have a, we have a vague idea of, of, uh, moving house and we've been looking at a few places in Pasadena as well. Oh really? Move um, again, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, she, she's addicted to moving. Is <laughs> what she? can I say? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you guys, I thought you guys loved your house there in Glendale. Well, we've kind of decided that we want to want to try and get into uh, st- uh, what, not stealth mode. What's the word when you generally uh, living cheaper? Um, uh, I don't know. Stinge don't know. mode. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's going on? Your it sounds like your your mic's moving around or something. I'm sorry, I just had to change positions. Is that okay now? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So, um, so well, there's a so couple we, of apartments that we've seen down there that look kind of interesting. In Pasadena. Yeah, in Pasadena. Yeah, with because uh, cool. I want to get somewhere with a nice pool. Yeah, well, so, that'd be cool. That'd so be I'm cool going to be down that way. Uh, maybe I could bring my, my laptop and um, we maybe just spend an hour. I'll just go through a couple of things with you. Yeah, show sure. You, show I appreciate it. Yeah. All right, so why don't we, enough with my bitching, let's, uh, let's <laughs> move on to something else. Well, sure. Okay, so one of the things, um, so I, I have been away for the last week working uh, with my Vivo, and that's, that's cool. Um, it's all very hush-hush, so I can't talk about it too much. Okay. But one of the other things that I've been doing um, in my spare time for about, I guess, probably around about a week and a half, just just under two weeks, is um, I was contacted by someone on Blogio who basically said that they'd like to translate it uh, into German. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I bet you if I could make the whole of Blogio translatable and then translate it into a bunch of different languages, it'll probably earn some more revenue. And they call it local, localizing? Yeah, local- localization, yeah, exactly. Local- so um, I've, I've been putting in an hour here, a couple of hours there, and it's taken about, I mean, obviously I've been working on it over the last week and a half, two weeks, but right. if you add all the hours up, I would say it's taken like a, a solid eight hour stretch to okay. just basically make the entire front end, the entire front end JavaScript front end and the whole back end and all the libraries and all that, split it up into two string files. And so basically each of these files just has one array an indexed array, where, but I actually type out the numbers. Right. And then within the JavaScript, when you go through it, you don't see any English anymore. You just see like S, you know, one, two, three, whatever the index of the array sure. is. Sure. So now I've got these uh, basically 6,000 6, words it came out to about. And um, I've put it onto Elance and seen if anyone can uh, translate it. I've had a couple of quotes back, about 300 bucks a language, hmm. which is kind of expensive. Um, because that, you know, if for French, Italian, German, and Spanish, that's going to be 1200. Um, so now I've started to tweet saying, does anyone want to help me translate? <laughs> well, it would be really interesting to find out exactly, you know, what would be a potential increase in revenue if you were in 
any of those languages. Well, I mean, well, exa- are you going to have like three people who speak French? Well, or exactly. I mean, 50, you know, paying customers. I, I mean, the one thing is, is that the way that I've done it, I've basically done it with a domain name thing. So basically it'll be fr.plugio.com, it.plugio.com. Right. And then I've got links on the front page with the little flags pointing to those languages. So um, Google should basically index it in the different languages. Right. Which in theory should bring in new traffic from those from those languages. Right. Oh, so that's cool. I've never I've actually never localized an, an app. So that's kinda interesting. That's that's not too eight hours, that's not such a big deal. Because I've I've heard I've heard a lot of people complain that it's such a really big deal. Mm. But I guess it doesn't have to be. I'd say it would definitely be a big deal if it was a big app. I mean Plugio is kind of a small app. I mean it's not that small. Um it's a medium sized app. I mean there's certainly certainly you know 50,000 lines of code so welterweight yeah so what's the uh, update on Pelagio aside from that I mean how anything else going on with like user growth or customer oh because you you changed you got rid of the free account and you started transitioning to a 30 day trial right yeah actually that's a good point let's have a look at the well I'll, I'll tell you this the the number of registrations has definitely halved sure um, it's gone down to I guess on average of about five a day Whereas it was about twelve. Okay. Um, so obviously that's that's different. But on the other hand, those people who sign up do seem more inclined to discuss paying because it's the only right. concept they have of the site. I think it's a bit too early to say at this stage. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And um, what about Swarm? So basically, we did the update went onto iTunes. Um, okay. It's been updated. I think from like the thousand downloads, I think it's been updated about six hundred times. So, so okay. 600 of those thousands have updated. Okay, one, cool. One person uh, commented on it and said, well, awesome update, real cool, um, but the AI could do a bit of, uh, you know, could be a bit cleverer. And then they came back a couple of days later and changed their update and said, actually, uh, the AI is, is just making random moves and it, it doesn't give me a satisfying game at all. So they changed their review from five stars to four stars. Hmm. Um, so what, what we've kind of... And, and they said it themselves in that review, they said these guys should really focus on getting a network game out so that people can play each other yeah, and then focus on the AI later. So that's pretty much what we've decided to do. And um, we're going to set really? it up. Yeah. And I'm, well, it's not that we're not going to focus on the AI, but it's just that I think that Sebastian feels that to, to take the AI forward, he wants to do that, the genetic learning stuff. Yep. And um, to do that, we need to log thousands of games. Well, that's a different approach because so if you're looking at games that have been played and you're trying to evaluate, that's sort of like a supervised learning. Right. So whereas if you sort of bootstrap it where the game is playing itself, that's kind of unsupervised learning. So there's two different types of learning. Um, You can do it the other way. Like when we talked to David Fogel about how he evolved Blondie 24, it was the game played itself. It didn't look at, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of checkers games, log checkers games to figure out what to do in what instance. It just played itself over and over and over again. Right. right? Or right. different or different variations of, of of agents would play them play each other. So, but if uh, you know, so you don't have to have recorded games to do that. Now, Sebastian may have a lot of very good reasons why he wants to do supervised learning or wants to use um, uh, logged games as some sort of guiding um, rule set or something for the learning. That's that's a whole other issue. But just to point that out, that you don't have to do it that way. Well, Sebastian's already made um, a a good bit of headway with that, and he's been working with PubNub 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's got uh, got PubNub, the basics of it working. And, all right, um, PubNub. Yeah. All right. All go, right. guys. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, awesome. Well, first of all, let me say this, by the way. Obviously, what I'm talking about in terms of using unsupervised or supervised learning, I'm just pointing out those are different possibilities. Sebastian's right. obviously a very bright guy, and he's been working on this problem. So if he if he's uh, taking the supervised learning approach, he may have some very good reasons why that's smarter. So I, right. I don't mean to say that he's wrong or, or it doesn't make sense what he's doing. I'm just well, even the bigger aspects. The bigger bigger aspects of moving to, to of pushing out the network gaming thing next and in actual fact it was already in the roadmap so basically um the first of next month was the target release date for that anyway mm-hmm. um, but the the bigger thing is is that we've got no way of getting in contact with the people who are playing the game right um, no way of building up a community i agree well i you know i i always thought that was important too um i the, my, the only thing i it was a little surprised at is I thought I would figure that you would be able to do that by yourself and and Sebastian could work you know solely on the AI. But is he? But is it something you guys want to work together on the network stuff together? Well, he he really wants to um, get basically help out with all of it at this stage. So okay, he doesn't like to say <laughs> so I, he just doesn't want to be the AI guy. He wants to help no, out. No, exactly. And so so we're we're basically both working on everything really. I think that's smarter. Just to, just one thing I'll point out is I think that's smarter. I think sometimes when you silo yourself right. within one subsystem, you don't really appreciate a lot of issues that that are important, and you get you just limit your perspective on things. It also gets boring sometimes. And then also it's like if you never if like for instance if you never worked on the AI or he never worked on the network things, you, you lose the benefit of having two minds on a problem. Right. The only the second person can only give you sort of superficial advice. It's like me giving you suggestions on things. It's just sort of superficial. It's like you, you give me some high level view, and I go, "Well, maybe try this." And every once in a while, I might happen to say something useful, but I don't really have any deep insight in what's going on, so I really can't help you. Right. So I, that makes sense. Plus, yeah. if you guys are partners in it, you know, be partners in it. I agree. Yeah. So that's basically where we're going, and we're we're going to hook that in through Facebook and Twitter. Um, I mean, once again, I think that the thing about Swarm is <laughs> it's not, I don't feel like it's this thing that's going to kind of instantly go ballistic and, and turn us into millionaires or anything like that. I think it's like a, a five-year kind of sideline interesting thing. The five-year plan. I just think it's an interesting side project, the right? The five-year plan. Just, yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. Or a ten-year plan, or whatever. Yeah, I think. Ten-year. I think you know. I mean, like I said, like we've talked about before. I mean, there are occasionally the thing where someone, the, the project where people blow up, you know, in six months or a year, and they make a lot of money. I mean, Peldy and Balsamic is one example. Yeah, of that's that. but it's rare. rare. It's the exception, and a lot of really great, successful small startups. You know, it, it took three to five years before they saw much, if any, real revenue. You yeah, know? and so I, 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 I think that that's absolutely the right mindset. For that you guys need to take, which is just continuing to create this really cool game, create a great AI, create a great community, you know, do all these kind of things to make it more and more exciting for people. And, you know, it'll work. It's a cool game. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank so, you. Uh, well, that's cool. So, um, yeah, um, we'll have to get Sebastian on again one of these days and kind of hear his two cents on things. I'd like to hear so sort of his. I've got hey. something else to talk about quickly, which is the Plugio stats page. Right. And the openness of Plugio. Yep. I'm beginning to think that, and this is probably going to sound really stupid. Huh? <laughs> I'm beginning to think that it's kind of stupid to do that, uh-huh. to, to be open. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't know what advantage it brings. Like the only advantage it brings is that it inspires new people to, you know, to, to get off their butt and become a developer. 
That's that's the only advantage. Apart from that, it brings nothing but disadvantage <laughs> against your competitors. <laughs> well, I, th- I agree. Um, I think that it, it's an existence proof, right? It's like when people know that you're making a lot of money at something, especially if you're like a one person show, yeah. then they're going to think, oh, I can compete with that. Wow, that guy's making, you know, a lot of money. You know, and, and, and I mean, if you're not making any money, then it makes no difference. <laughs> but if you're making enough that someone else gets, you could entice other, you can entice competitors because sometimes it's hard to tell exactly how much money a company is making and, and you don't even know how many resources they're pouring into it. Mm-hmm. And that's why companies are, you know, they don't want to invite competition. People want to keep it quiet. And it kind of, you know, to use another one of my trading analogies, it's just like, you know, if you're, it's funny because back in Chicago, you talk to all these traders who are trading, you know, whether we're trading options or stocks or futures or they were upstairs or downstairs traders, they would never say, oh, yeah, I'm killing it, making a ton of money. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> They're all like, ah, you know, it's no money. It's not like the old days. It's tough, man. It's a grind. There's hardly any liquidity anymore. You're just getting run over the big guys. So you're like, oh, really? Yeah. And then it's like three years later, you found out that they made like $3 million that year. But it's, it's not just that. It's also having, being that open shows the intent and the strategy that you plan on. And yeah, so well, what happens is, is that the, your, comp- your competitors can basically, you know, pre- pre-execute that intent and strategy because they've got more resources. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're exactly on the same um, uh, wavelength here because it's funny. The, the, the one topic that I meant to bring up last week but we ran out of time was a, it was a blog article written by um, Mike McDermott at uh, Fresh, Fresh Books. And the title of the blog post was Five Reasons Why Sharing Your Product Roadmap is a Bad Idea. <laughs> right. Now, unfortunately, I had written up some really good notes on this, except when my computer died, I, I had an open uh, window with the, with the notes written down and it wasn't saved, so I lost them all. Uh-huh. But I'll kind of go through the five topics and we kind of talk about them a little bit. Um, is that okay? You want to jump to this? And we can just yeah, talk? yeah, no, we, this we is, can ex- relate them back to Plug exactly. I mean, this is, uh, this is what I've listed as one of the things to talk about, so go for it. Oh, really? You actually the same topic? Well, no, but just generally, I, just, just generally that I've, I've been thinking I want to kind of get rid of that stats page and become a lot more um, closed. And guarded yeah, about, I don't about think it, what I'm I don't doing. Think, I think it's fine to, like on the podcast, and we talk about general things in your experience. But, but uh, okay, well, let's get into this. We'll go back to that. It yeah. says that number one is, is one of the number one reasons is commitments weigh you down, right? So mm-hmm. it's essentially by saying you're going to do something, and then if you change your mind later, then you, you lose credibility, right? Or like, oh, we got to do this now, even though because we told everyone we we're going to do it, right? Like, let's say that you, that you, you, you made a big deal about how you're going to make the AI your number one thing, and then you decide, well, we're going to move into the network stuff for a while. Well, if you have a bunch of loud um, uh, users who are willing to complain about you not doing the AI right now, then you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's unfortunate because, you know, you as the entrepreneur and as a developer, you have a lot of like um, variables that you need to weigh in terms of times and resources and, and what's going to make money. And maybe you just understand how to solve a problem better. So like, let's solve this one now because we understand it. This other one, we just don't quite have a great idea on it. So even though we wanted to do it, we need to push it until we can think of we have more a better perspective on it or something. Now, does that work for small bugs as well? I think, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like everything is sort of like a spectrum of, you know, there's not everything's black and white. It's kind of fuzzy. I think, I think you can, I think when you talk about major features, we are going to do X and Y and Z and we're going to do it by this date. And then you box yourself in. 
mm. and you lose credibility. And so that's why it's probably good just to not. Yeah, but but it, you you're also the thing is you're only talking about the negatives of it. Like there's some positives as well, okay. and the the positives are that you're building a relationship with your customers. You're setting up expectations. They really want that thing to happen, and they're going to stay with you and uh, basically uh, promote you by word of mouth because they think you're good a good company and you're moving forward to build the things that they want. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, right. I mean, it's like, if, are your customers your customers because they like what you have? Or are they, are, are they customers because they think you're going to build something they want in six months time? I think both both of those things. Well, certainly the Plugio customers are because they like the customer service and they like the fact that I'm prepared to discuss with them the possibility of building features. Well, you know, one thing is the other thing that he that Mike McDermott points out, at least as far as point one is concerned, he said that you know if you don't if you don't come through follow through on delivering a feature, then you could really screw over your customer because if they needed that because they were banking on you having that done, and let's say you decide not to do it or push it away six months or a year away, then you've really kind of screwed them over. Yeah, that's you've true. You misled them. So it's I, I think. You know, it's. I know that I'm much more of the mind that I like. I'm really excited about working on, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to totally have this, and I work on this. And it, it'd be my instinct to just want to tell people what I'm going to do. But I think it's probably shrewder just to not commit to anything and say, yeah, we think that's an important issue. We're definitely looking at that at, yeah. at most. I wouldn't commit to anything. Probably would be safer. <laughs> well, the classic one. The classic one is um, Pivotal Tracker. Um, basically, Pivotal Tracker has, is is the system that I use for um, managing agile stuff, mm-hmm. and it's like a, a an, uh, an online storyboard. And they have had a ticket on Get Satisfaction for I think it's coming up to four years now. Mm-hmm. Is to be able to set set it so that you can use custom points values. Okay. So when you're when you're doing your estimations, and this thread has just constantly been open for the last four years, and they've said, yeah, we're going to do that, we're going to do that, we're going to do that, and then people say people are begging for it. Um, and it's just interesting to me that that something has lasted that long and still not been fulfilled, and it's still not fulfilled to this day. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. so. What so? What does that make them look like? <laughs> I mean, they lose credibility. Makes them look like you say you're going to do something and you don't do it. I mean, it's it's just like you know when I said I was going to have Epic Night ready. You know, first of all, I can have something ready by the beginning of the year and it's dragging on. It's like, I'm, it hurts my credibility. I'm just not going to talk about it anymore, right? Right. <laughs> because it just, you know, it's just a lot of other things that I have to go into how long it takes for me to deliver. And the best thing is just not to commit to anything, I think. Get it out there as soon as you can, but don't, don't, don't describe deadlines if you, because there's a good chance you're not going to make them. Um, the, Another reason, question number, or the point number two was, uh, or the reason not to reveal your roadmap is keep your competition guessing. Yeah. And he says there's nothing like giving away your roadmap to inform your competition and make it easy for them to head you off at the pass. Well, which, which is, is true. Point. But does that relate to something like Swarm, which is basically, I mean, does Swarm have any kind of specific competition other than just other games? Like we've got a roadmap on the blog and it basically says we'll have network gaming within a month. Then, yeah, I think I think that um, you don't really have competition in that pers- in that respect. So I don't think that would hurt you. For, if it wouldn't hurt you for that reason. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, I think reason so, number one, it could hurt us because we yeah. don't get it out on time. Yeah, and, and reason number three, which is interesting, is purchase decisions get delayed. So what happens? They say, "Oh, you know, you don't have this. Well, great, get in touch with me." And when you do, like they hmm. might have considered buying it, but now they realize that oh, you're going to have it ready in three months or six months. They might just hold off and say, well, 
and so not only did you lose the sale, because a certain number of those people probably would have bought it anyway, but now you sort of have to follow up. You created work for yourself because you got to follow up with that person. Mm, that's interesting, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was an interesting one. So you created work for yourself in addition to losing a sale. Um, the other one is, uh, the number four is don't set expectations too high. And uh, so, you know, if you if you if you keep your cards close to your chest and you and you you just try and and not because if people have this expectation they don't get met and they don't get met then you just create frustration and disappointment. You know, it is like when you go to a movie and people everyone says it was awesome and it was only good and then all of a sudden you you you're really disappointed because instead of going instead of enjoying seeing a good movie you're disappointed because everybody thought it was the greatest movie you've ever seen they've ever seen and so when you see it and you're just like i don't i don't know why i loved it so, so much has that been your strategy of late with um epic night that that don't set expectations high because you've been i guess saying kind of minimizing you know oh, it's going to be ready at some stage we're going to you know we don't know when we're going to do it yeah I, you know i i don't i i couldn't i i wouldn't say that i actually have a pr strategy <laughs> <laughs> whatever happens to come out of my mouth or what I'm thinking about when we're talking is my strategy, I guess. Um, I don't, I'm just, I'm just realizing that, you know, obviously I've, I've missed some dates and, you know, I don't like, you know, not delivering when I said I was going to deliver. So I think policy now is just, you know, I'll release it as soon as it's ready. I hope it's sooner than later. But I just, you know, you don't want to disappoint people, you know, because there's a certain number of people who are going to be interested. I mean, you know, Epic Night probably doesn't matter. I mean, there's a certain number of people who are, who are like, yeah, I'm look- they're looking forward to seeing it. They might be intrigued by it, but they're not, you know, betting their business on it, you know, because right. it's released, right? You know, um, I don't know. You, it's just, it, it, but, if you, but if you do come out and, and, and it comes out and it's, and it's, and you haven't made too many promises and it's good, then obviously the people are excited. You know, so anyway, number five is you can bank on surprise and delight. So right, you just come out and surprise somebody with some new features and stuff. That's when people blow. I mean, that's what Apple does, right? They don't telegraph what they're going to do. I see. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's it's like you don't know anymore, and everybody spends all their time guessing, and they create a big event out of it, and they keep everything really hush because they understand how important it is to surprise and delight their customers have people anticipating the unknown. If everything's kind of draw, you know, drawn out on a, on a to-do list for the next five years, it's just nothing to talk about. It's nothing to be excited about. Hmm. Nothing to blog about or press. I mean, it's like when they, you know, I, I don't know how often these press conferences are with Apple with every three months or so and, you know, or six months and everybody gets really excited and is it going to be an iPad thing or is it going to be a new Mac line of Macs? There's a Nana, you know, everybody gets spends, so they get all this free press and, um, you know, because people just want to talk about it and, and spend time guessing, anticipating, and arguing about what may or may not be released. So That's those really, are those that, are good that last point's really interesting, and it's something I hadn't thought about before. And now you say it, it's like I'm, it's like a duh moment. I'm like, oh god, <laughs> That's so <laughs> obvious. <laughs> well, you, yeah. you know, it's like um, you see a horror movie, and it's like if you see the monster, it's all of a sudden not so scary. But when you don't really see the monster. When you don't know what the hell it is, that's when it's the creepiest. What and is the anticipation? It's the anticipation of what's built up in your mind, and it becomes a, a, a thing. And, um, you know, Steve Jobs has figured that out, you know, along with figuring out a lot of other things. But I think that's probably a very basic, you know, uh, sort of principle of how to, how to keep your audience excited and engaged is surprising them with stuff. Right. So, anyway, I, I think this stuff plays into both Swarm and Plugio for you for a lot of reasons. I, 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 you know, after seeing what you've done in Plugio, I think that 
you know, these sort of radical transparency of telling everybody how much you made and mm-hmm. stuff. I thought it was it's, it was an interesting experiment. I think you probably got a little bit of of um, press, or you got some. Blo- I know there's at least one or two articles written about it, right? That yeah. Brought it up. But was it worth it? Were those blog articles? Did that bring you any new customers, or did that definitely do anything? not? Yeah, so definitely not. And it's like it's it's it would have been nice to have that open transparency if the numbers were kept on going up. But the one thing is, is like now I have openly that everyone can see just how uh, <laughs> unsuccessful <out>. it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, but right. I mean, it's, it's fine, you know. It's, yeah, uh, I, I think it's. I think it was a good experiment. But you know, it's like because it, it's sort of this. Um, it's one of those things that I always can think about, which is the cargo cult aspect of Hacker News. Like people start replicating things that they th- because they say, okay, well, this, this, they say this, this company or this product succeeded. Why did it succeed? And then people start guessing. Well, they succeeded because of X. Well, it turns out that it might not have been X, or it might not have been Y. It might have been some combination of X, Y, and Z. You know, it's just hard to tell. And because you're not, you don't have sort of a controlled experiment, it, you'll, you'll never know for sure. And so what ends up happening is you end up replicating things that had nothing to do with it. So like, for instance, a lot of people replicated um, Gmail's invite only thing. Yeah, yeah. For how you can only invite only and that created the sort of anticipation and the sort of that, I forget what they call it, New York lines. Like you have to, you, you know, you, you, they don't let everybody in, everybody's waiting around. So it's this sort of like artificial demand, artificial scarcity. Yeah, thing. and so the, and so in, 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 in terms of radical transparency, we look at Balsamic, right? Like he was very transparent, and and everybody was sort of shocked. A lot of people in the blogosphere were shocked by that, yeah. right? How and so he got a lot of press coverage. It was kind of a purple cow, Seth Godin's you know term of you know, hey, look at this, this guy's totally open, and and it may turn out that because he was the first one to really do it. That he may might have gotten a lot more press coverage than he would have. So anybody who does it afterwards, it's not such. It's kind of old news, yeah. Yeah, it's. But it's also his numbers were what his numbers warranted it. You know, like if you if when you you're a single guy, you're you're developing it, and then you you know you're up to like half a million dollars in the first six months. Those are numbers that are interesting. <laughs> but numbers that are like a thousand a month, thousand the next month, thousand the next month, thousand. Yeah, people are like, it's oh yeah, really okay, so that's a nice little thing, yeah. but it's not a big deal. It's not worth talking about. And the radical transparency has, been, has already been done. And as it turns out, you know, it's the radical transparency isn't why um, Peldy is succeeding. He's succeeding because he's he's solving a problem that people have very well. Yeah. You know, and he was able to leverage that radical transparency to get some uh, additional press um, early on. So, I don't yeah. know. So that I, I just think that's probably a case of where it's easy to get fooled into thinking that well, if I do X and Y like they did, then I'm going to have some of their success, and it may really have nothing to do with anything. Yeah, just coincidental. Yep. Okay. So uh, yeah, let's hear what what else you got. Oh, I was going to say what else you got because I think <sighs> I've been I've been leading the charge for the last half an hour at least. Oh come on. I picked that one out, didn't I? Five uh, reasons why. <laughs> well, you picked it out because of something that I said. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, um, I saw an interesting article. It was it was talk about. Um, okay, I, I lost my link to it. Uh, Pam 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 Spermia. Uh, it was talking about. Let's see if I can find it. Pam Spermia. From Pam Spermia, which is that is, is there's sort of a scientific theory that life didn't begin on Earth that. For instance, some comet or asteroid or something could have landed on Earth, <laughs> and some of the building blocks of life actually came from off of these rocks. Okay. Right? And it's not, it's not a kook theory. I mean, it's a legitimate hypothesis among 
scientists. I don't, I don't, I think it's still a minority view that that's really where life came from, that it didn't originate on Earth, but that's just, it's, I think it's called panspermia or something, and it originated around 15, 20 years ago or something like that. Anyway, well, apparently back in 2001, there was this sort of red rain that was coming down in India. And actually what people saw was not only red, but there was like green or yellow. And it was very strange. And there were some local, I think a local physicist and some other scientists were down there. And they collected some samples of this stuff. And what they determined that it was likely like a comet or asteroid, small asteroid or small comet that came into the Earth's atmosphere and broke up. And it sort of seeded the clouds with some of the debris. And Mm. it just colored some of the rain that came down from the clouds. Yeah. And what happened was they found these, um, these, these little organisms, these little cells that, were, that looked like little bugs, and they were inert until it was like, oh, I can't remember, it was like 1,200 degrees or something, like 120 degrees or 12, no, I, let me find this. It was, obviously, that's a big difference between 1,200 pa- and 100. Panspermia, P-A-N. Yeah, panspermia. So let me let me let me just find for nothing panspermia. Let me see if I can find this one thing. I'm sorry. Might have to to uh The first known mention of the term was in the writings of the 5th century BC Greek philosopher Anaxagoras. <laughs> right, somebody. Okay, so um yeah, he says the cells were inert at room temperature and began to reproduce at 121 degrees Celsius. And they came from space. Well, that's the that's what the the guys guy uh, um, these professors um, the physicist Godfrey Lewis um, says that the water contains cells that look like bugs, and he said that okay, so the the the, the cells were inert until 121 degrees Celsius, which is pretty hot. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but that's hot. And he says within two hours of being exposed to the heat, daughter cells appear within the original mother cells, and then the number of cells in the samples increases with length of exposure. They say in the report. So, and what's also really interesting, he says that um, he says that while many spores on Earth can survive that kind of extreme heat, none have yet been discovered that can reproduce in those conditions, much less require it to begin reproducing. And he says the team also found an unusual pattern in the way the cells change color under UV light, known as fluorescence behavior. So they started if you if you you know, put UV light on it, they started to act strange. And it says, they said it was a remarkable coincidence with red emissions from the red rectangle planetary nebula some 23,000 light years away, suggesting, though not proving, an extraterrestrial origin. Hmm. And he said, what's really interesting is that, he says, um, the, uh, the, the cells contain no DNA or hmm. RNA. And one of the commenters is about his, as a biologist, let me assure you that a cell size, that a cell sized and shaped organism that reproduces lives off LB and doesn't appear to have any nucleic acid template, DNA or, or RNA is a revolutionary discovery in and of itself. So there's no RNA or DNA. So the only other kind of, I guess, organism on the planet they've discovered that doesn't have a nucleic acid template is uh, these things that are called prions. They're a type of protein called prions that uh, cause mad cow disease, but that's it. Everything Mm -hmm. else has some type of RNA or DNA. So I thought it was a really interesting story. (laughs) Yeah, that is. I'm just just looking on the Wikipedia page for panspermia. And um, another thing that's kind of interesting is, um, I don't know whether this is the same. Was it David McKay? The guys who who did the... the, the, um, 
the professors in this, the yeah. scientists. That was um, uh, Godfrey Lewis and Chandra Wickramasinghe, I think. <laughs> that a, a meteorite originating from Mars known as ALH 84001 was shown in 1996 to contain, to contain microscopic structures resembling small terrestrial nanobacteria. Um, when the discovery was announced, um, many immediately conjectured that there were fossils, that these were fossils, and were the first evidence of extra, extra, <laughs> extraterrestrial life. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's, there's a bunch of uh, evidence for this. Uh, if you look at, well, obviously Wikipedia, I mean, how true is Wikipedia? But it's kind of interesting. Well, I, I think there was, an, uh, there was a study, I mean, not that every article is 100% perfect on Wikipedia, but I think there was a study, you know, years ago that, said, that found that Wikipedia had fewer mistakes than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Hmm. You know? I mean, there's everybody who has all these criticisms that like Wikipedia is some kind of a uh, of a error ridden joke is I think that's not really the case. I mean, you you you, you I would think anything you have to find off if you're going to base research or something off Wikipedia, you need to go to original sources. But for like you know what we're doing here, it's like just get a quick look on something. It's pretty useful. The living intraplanetary flight experiment, which is being developed by the Planetary Society, will consist of sending selected microorganisms on a three-year interplanetary round trip in a small capsule aboard the Russian Phobos-Grunt spacecraft in 2011. The goal is to test whether organisms can survive a few years in deep space. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. People are thinking about it. Okay, so let's hear another, uh, let's hear one of your articles. What do you got? I, I actually don't have any more. Okay, I'm out. done. I got I got another one from last week. Go on. Called um, there was something that popped up on the on the web called um, ACHR uh, Alternative Competitive Hypotheses. Yeah, and it was talking about it was developed by the CIA. I, I, I the guy's name. I'll look it up on Wikipedia. Um, actually, why don't you do that? You're you're Mister um, Wikipedia. Okay. Tell me a bit so, more about it. Well, okay, so essentially uh, alternative competitive hypothesis is, works as that. So when the CIA was, is trying to determine, okay, well, they have a bunch of competing hypotheses for describing what's happening in the world in some situation. It's sort of a structured way of getting all the evidence out there and trying to, f and trying to either f um, find evidence that, that conflicts with it or supports it, and so that you can kind of build up um, a much more objective framework for analyzing what's the more likely um, hypothesis. Okay. Right. So it, it's it's a very structured and very specific methodology, and, and you, 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 I think there's a there's like some open source software that you can like a Java app that you can do that you can, that you can download where you so okay you have like okay let's say we have five different hypotheses for explaining why situation is happening and then you go and you, and you and you have to make sure that they're all mutually exclusive and there's some certain things like that and then you go and you put in certain evidence and then you have to find out like what conf what contrary or what conflicting evidence can you find for each hypothesis and stuff like that and it kind of when i saw that i'm like that's really cool because i had i had brought that up before at least once where i thought it would be kind of neat if there was like a website where people could could bring up and propose hypotheses and then you could find like supporting or conflicting evidence against that. Remember I brought that up with yeah. in our interview with um, John C. Dvorak, Mr. John C. Dvorak. Have you started was, developing one in App Ignite? No, oh. <laughs> but he was like, nah, it's like I can mark it up the wrong tree. Yeah. I had a couple of friends since and said, I don't know. I was like, I think that could work. Um, I, I thought well, if that, John Dvorak says no, that's a dead cert that it's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, no, he's, he brought up a good point. He's like, look, he's, you, know, you have all these, you have these old people and kids and crazy people. Like, how do you know 
you know, anything about the evidence. I mean, I think what happened, you'd have to have is you'd have to get people, you'd have to somehow determine who's, who are the judges and who aren't about what's, about the evidence. Right. But I thought it would be interesting because you have so much stuff on the web, whether they're conspiracy theories or even mainstream news, where you're just like, I don't know if that's actually as true as people think it is. And it would be interesting if you had a, a structured way to vet that information as opposed to having, well, here's an article that says X. Well, here's an article that says Y. I think this sounds like a good argument. No, this sounds like a good argument. And, you know, a lot of times people are believing stuff because it conforms to the worldview. It's a cognitive bias, or it's just like, well, I've heard this 15 times, and I've read it, and on, you know, I've saw it heard on CNN, and I read it on, on MSNBC, and I saw it on the Wall Street Journal, so it's got to be true, you know. And it's like, oh, well, you know, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, right? And we were all mm-hmm. convinced of it because we heard it a million times, yeah, right. And there was a, um, it's one way to sort of, uh, I guess, it fights against propaganda, but it also fights against sort of like bogus conspiracy theories. I mean, yeah. I think what most people want more than anything is just to know the truth. Like, what is really true? I mean, people, most people obviously prefer to be proven right that their particular pet beliefs or view, worldviews are actually more true than these other competing views. But I think, at least for me, I'd like to know what is really true. <laughs> and I think something like this as sort of like, as sort of a collaborative website that had a hierarchy of sort of, you know, people build up points and therefore ability to say judge information and judge evidence and propose hypotheses. Um, it'd be interesting to see if you could build something like that. Yeah, I think so. I thought that was cool. Um, okay, so I've an- got another one. Oh, you do? Well, now, do. Now, you got, now you got topics. Okay. Yeah, okay. So um, <laughs> this, this is something that I saw earlier on in the week. You've probably seen it, but uh, th- there was a lady in South Korea who basically took her driving test 960 times oh my God. and passed at 960. Right. And uh, as, as the time went on, she became a bit of a, like a national celebrity. And so right. every time she took a test, <laughs> everyone was hoping that she'd pass it. <laughs> she went through 960 attempts. But that's pretty, uh, you know, that's really sticking at something, isn't it? I would say so. That's persistence. <laughs> <laughs> that's that the kind is- of persistence we need. Wow. I don't know if anyone needs that persistence, that much persistence. Would that you have sounds, given up? I think I probably would have given up after maybe the 15th time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I just wasn't meant to drive. <laughs> maybe there's a good reason I'm not passing this because I'm going to kill somebody if I get on that and find a wheel of a car. You know, I mean, maybe finally she got lucky enough or finally whoever her reviewer was, was just sort of like, screw it, you passed. And now someone's going to get killed. Maybe she's going to run over somebody because she can't see she's, you know, legally blind or something. So, so the word began spreading in throughout the country after she'd failed seven hundred times. It took seven hundred failures for them to notice her. Wow. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of similar to an article um, I read recently. What was it? I saw it was about it was called Einstein Superman or or Super Stubborn. Right. And it was basically talking about how he. Um, you know that I guess, like he, along with a lot of the other scientists, have a, had a ton of errors in their original theories. That it took a lot of. It wasn't like oh, they just had this. It, they were right from the start, and they were right quickly. That they, you know, they spent a lot of time working on stuff, and a lot of their stuff, initial stuff, were, were just was just not were just wrong. The theory was the theories were just wrong. The math was wrong, and it took a while for them to fix it up. And a lot of times, it was even researchers came later who ended up fixing up the theories and cleaning them up and and filling in the holes. Um, and that, you know, Einstein himself wasn't that amazing of a student early on and was sort of, according to some of these, um, you know, physicists, was sort of a mediocre mathematician at best. Maybe uh, he just had a good publicist. 
Well, you know, that's, that's essentially what the article was saying was that, well, I guess there's, been a, there's a new biography that's come out, and it's basically debunking this idea that Einstein was this just super genius, you know, infallible guy that, you know, he was I, I obviously an intelligent guy, but this is kind of, because if you read most of the biographies about him, they're very, very positive. And they, they, they make him out to be this, uh, you know, this sort of superhuman. But he's like, one of the things that you see in like, in all these physics programs is like, you know, the people who worked with him or worked with his students or students of students would tell kind of behind, tell the story behind closed doors that he really wasn't that that great at a lot of stuff huh. and uh, I don't know it's kind of interesting I mean it's the kind of thing you could take you can weigh in there but it's like I think what happens a lot of times is that someone succeeds at stuff and not only is it easier story to digest that they were just brilliant and they did just amazing stuff um, it's a simpler story. It's a more fun story sometimes that this guy's just a superhuman. Uh, but it also sometimes works for like PR reasons for the government, you know, for, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, holding Einstein up as this, as this amazing guy, you know, science in America and the Western world. And, you know, there's all these, you know, the publicists and the book, you know, whoever's, whoever can benefit off it can help create this image. It's just like what you see with like great athletes and stuff like that. It isn't until later you go, Oh wow, that guy's really flawed. Like Tiger Woods. <laughs> you know, did you, did you see, um, just ch- changing the subject there. Did you see uh, rocket engine? Yeah. So it's a browser based uh, gaming engine, browser based gaming engine and IDE as well. I saw it. And the reason I, I, I know I really kind of, I, took notice of it was i was talking with uh my buddy phil about it because he wants to that's one of the things he's thinking about getting into um is uh game game design and game building Mm -hmm. and he's like you know and and we're talking about the idea of building something for the web browser as opposed to trying to build like a something specific for an iphone or or uh you know a console or something but he didn't want to like have to build the whole gaming engine itself and so then that popped up like the next day. I'm like, well, there you go. <laughs> it's done. Yes. Yeah. yeah, if you're looking for something that doesn't exist, just kind of wait like 10 minutes and then someone will work, do it. it did, did you have a look at the video? I didn't. So it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's like a, a completely written in um, HTML, JavaScript. Um, it's a very, very rich application mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a lot like Flash in, in, in a way. Like, okay. So you have your stage and then you can create your characters which you just kind of drag onto your stage mm-hmm. and then you can give them different properties like you can give them um, different physics properties so they can be made of like the, the example they gave was they drag some beach balls on and then the balls were bouncing and then they kind of gave one of them the property of being uh, concrete right you know and it instantly then responded in the correct way it, it was pretty impressive the only thing I'd say is it looked very slow um, hmm. which it would do if it, you know if it's JavaScript well so. it doesn't happen I mean, if it's running on Chrome Chrome is like, you know, is a, a, a JIT, right? I mean, it's like as fast as, you know, Java or something well, like that. Well, they had the same thing running on the iPad. They had it running on the Mac. Um, and clearly on the iPad, it, it did look quite slow. Um, there was kind of this thing where they were dragging it across the screen. And you huh. could tell that there was a bit of a lag on it. But well, as we you know, I, I think that even if that stuff's kind of slow now, it's not going to be a problem in three years from now. Right. You know, it's like, I think they talked about, there's a whole, it was a whole thing about Excel and um, Lotus. I don't think I quite remember the story, but like Excel, like Lo- Lo- Lotus, they were working on uh, Lotus 1, 2, 3 and trying to, they were still trying to get the fix, fit into what, like 16-bit? 
yeah. 32-bit or 16-bit memory, well, or Microsoft was just like, okay, we're going straight for 32-bit. We're not even going to worry about. We're going to spend any time on that. And that's when Microsoft made a huge jump on Lotus and pretty much killed them because when I, I'm, th- I think it was when 32-bit operating systems came out, they were just way ahead. Because they, they, it's kind of like you're leading. You, you, if you start working on something, just anticipate where the market's going to be in two or three years from now. Yeah. And then, and then and that's just when you're starting the release. That's not even like, you know, the life of your product five, seven years in. So, yeah, if you're like, well, I'm going to go start developing games for the browser. Well, it's a little slow now. Fine. Just, you know, not only are computers getting faster, but this browser war between Safari and uh, Chrome and Firefox, I mean, they're just it's like every few months they're like making a leap forward in terms of speed. Yeah, that is true. So, and, and it's going to take you at least a year to get something decent out, right. To, to yeah. round it up and to get the, the user feedback and all that kind of stuff. Well, then you just, and also you just focus in on maybe things that the browser can do well. You try not to do things that the browser can't do as well. You know, maybe not try and focus on a first person shooter in a browser, <laughs> you know, I mean, cause games aren't just about like amazing graphics. It's about playability. I mean, this this rocket engine thing. Uh, it's it's actually rocketpack.fi. If anyone wants to have a look at it, um, what's cool about it is it's it just the same reason why I'm kind of building in um, CSS and HTML is because basically you don't have to do any extra work to get it onto all of the different platforms. You know, like they right. they they're instantly just showing this on Android, on the iPad, on the web. Yeah, like it's just the future. That that's the way yeah. forward. I think. You know, I keep hearing about how. I think I saw this this week in, in, in Twit and Cranky Geeks. All these pundits talking about how we're going to a future with just everything has a, a, a dedicated app to it. As opposed <laughs> yeah, to they were talking about that. I yeah. don't agree with that. No, I think that's, that's wrong. Because that the problem is that you know we're kind of in a – and there was another article I read which kind of summarized the issue that you know there's an app bubble right now. Right. Like, yeah, there's, you know, billion dollars have been made from apps. I guess Steve Jobs quoted that number recently, but it comes down to like an average of like twenty four hundred dollars per app. Yeah. You know, and it, and the average app takes thirty five thousand dollars to develop. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, and, it, and it's just it, it takes forever to make it make the money back. And if you take the median app and how much they make a month, it's like it's ridiculous. It's just not a good return. And so everybody has jumped into the whole building iPhones and iPad games. And, and I think what's going to happen is it's just too expensive to build something that can make any money. And but building stuff for the web browser is is comparatively much uh, faster, much easier to build. Much well, more, um, I, I don't understand this theory that the web is dead. Like they keep on talking about that the web is dead, the web's going to die, apps are going to be where everything goes because people are going to get more and more, I guess, uh, localized and siloed. It just seems nuts to me. Nah. Doesn't make sense. Well, you know, there's always there's always these sort of like the pendulum, right? We go to we go to thick clients and then everything goes to cloud, then it goes back and forth, right? You have this constant pendulum back and forth, a reaction one way or the other. And um, I think a lot of companies would prefer things to be closed because they make money off of that. Yeah. Can, people like big companies that have a a market like to capture it and hold on to it and silo it as much as possible, whether it's their data or their you know platform for apps or whatever. But in the end, people get frustrated with that, and and the, and then people and, and developers and stuff bust out of it and try and break well, it free. What they're mainly talking about is. Um Basically, movie like movie studios like Warner Brothers disintermediating the cable networks and basically mm-hmm. having their own apps. And so you buy a Warner Brothers app and then download everything directly via them. But that's like, who who wants to have you know 
20 different apps from 20 different filmmakers and then download them all. I mean, it's through the aggregation that the that something like a cable company offers that makes it easy to watch TV, right? Yeah. You know, that's well, why Hulu's good. Well, I think I think that when you look at um, you know predicting things, it, it everybody when they start predicting stuff, they're really just predicting like what's going on right now. Yeah, like oh, it's just gonna be more of the same, you mm-hmm. know. And I, you, you know, it's 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 kind of reminds. I think there was a study. was like the mo- the best prediction for the the price uh, tomorrow for a stock is whatever today's price was. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like that turns out to be accurate. So people was like, well, there'll be more apps. Well, it's because there are more apps than there were before. That's been the direction. So people just, pundits, you know, just sort of follow along in this sort of linear, you know, uh, ex- extrapolation. And I, it's usually false. Things aren't, you know, linear extrapolations. They're nonlinear. And they start bouncing around and they go completely opposite direction. And, you know, all these competitive forces push things one way or the other. You get new entrants. You get new technologies that people figure out. They, they advance things in a completely unexpected new way. And one thing you can, guarantee, you can bet is things will be chaotic and unpredictable. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, I think that... I think a lot of times people, these pundits will predict things because, well, they have, you know, it's fun. It gives them something to talk about, you know, and it makes them sound like they're smart, makes them sound like they know, they can, they know what's happening. But because people hardly ever hold them to account and go, well, you know, three years ago you said this and you were totally wrong. So I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it'll probably bounce around. I don't think it's going to be, you know, everything's going to be in apps. I think there will be apps. But I think one thing is for sure, as long as it's more, is it's like an order of magnitude more expensive to build an app than a web, a website. And as the websites, the HTML5 get more and more powerful, there's going to be less and less, fewer and fewer reasons to spend money on building the apps, especially yeah. if they're not making any money anyway. Yeah. But that may just be the case, you know, over the next year or two, right? I mean, you get all these people building apps, but then again, you have things like Titanium, which make it, I would say, 10 times cheaper to build an app. Like, I could probably build an iPhone app with Titanium because I can just write directly or API using JavaScript just as fast as I could build, like, a, an HTML5 website. I mean, I suppose one thing that, that in, gives me some indication about the whole app idea is Georgie, uh, my wife, just got an iPhone, and it, watching her install apps on it and search for apps is something I'd never thought I'd see. So right. it, it just kind of goes to show that it, it is a desirable thing to do, you know. For now, yeah. today, yeah. this month, I mean, you know, three years from now, it might sound, it might, or three or five years from now, it might, might seem like as silly as CompuServe seems <laughs> right, yeah like aol why was that one just going to web oh no i'm a CompuServe. CompuServe's awesome <laughs> it is a little bit like a, it's like millions of little CompuServe's. that's what the whole app concept's like yeah I, I don't know i mean i think i think there will be lots of different technologies apps and web stuff and just like there are now just it, i think the world just gets more complex and there just seems to be more options for everything always it's like yeah. things don't get simpler they just get more complicated yeah, <laughs> I was thinking that you know for my yet my blog, which I have yet to write a single article for. <laughs> right, which you never like, will. I know I probably never will. Uh, is but the the tagline I, I came up with would be making the world more complicated one line of code at a time. <laughs> <laughs> you should do that. Just doing my part. <laughs> you should totally it, do that. Yeah, that's it. So I've yet to do anything, but you know, it's, I tell you, the whole iMac fiasco and my computer dying is just this week was a total loss. It was a disaster in terms of like not getting any work done. 
mm. so frustrating. I'm finally getting back up to speed. And then, of course, my virtual private server went down. So now I'm spending, instead of spending all day coding on App Ignite, I'm spending, you know, I'm going to be spending yet another couple hours configuring my environment. I actually can't wait for you to get that local environment set up. I mean, I, re- I think that it's, it, this is like a, a blessing in disguise uh, because you're going to, it's much faster to work locally like that. It might. You know, the one thing that I really, I really do want to do is I want to be able to do um, uh, debugging using a PHP uh, IDE where I can actually set breakpoints and look at the call stack and yeah. set watch variables. Which you can because, do locally, yeah. Because that, and I think Eclipse is like the best solution for that as far as I can tell. Maybe Komodo IDE, but... Uh, you know, I mean, w- when you're used to doing that, you know, which I have with, you know, you know, C sharp and C plus plus, then having to go in and do like echo statements to try and yeah. print out variables and figure out where I was, and you know, it's just, it's just, it's just so inefficient. Now, if you have really simple scripts where it's just like you're sticking stuff in the database, you're taking it out, and you're like, okay, I can put one or two echoes in here and probably figure out what it is. I mean, it's still less efficient than having a break statement, a breakpoint, and and examining the uh, the contents of variables, but you know, App Ignite has some very complicated code, and right. it's it can be frustrating to debug some of it using echo statements. Yeah. So that is that is a benefit. I I am looking forward to that. So I'm hoping, I'm just hoping that it works. <laughs> I'm just hoping that I can get, you know, because I was reading some stuff on the web about installing Eclipse on OS 10 with a PHP plugin and debugging that it, you know, was kind of a pain and didn't quite work right. Like a lot of these things, right? They seem like it should be straightforward, and then you actually try and install it, and it's a nightmare. Yeah. So I'm hoping that's not going to be a nightmare. I've had enough nightmares this week. I just want something to work so I can actually get some work done. But I think if that's the case, then I will be more productive going forward. I'm just looking at uh, some of the bids that have come back for this translation of these 6,000 words. So it's on, I'm on Elance. Uh, 310 buck, 120 bucks. 480 bucks, 250 bucks, 270 bucks. It's just all over, all over isn't it, really? It's hard to, and yeah, I guess you have to, how are you going to figure out who can do a good enough job and who can't? Like the one, there's one person here who's, who's basically bid 120 bucks and they have a 4.6 rating over 12 reviews and they've earned, you know, five grand. Like, why hmm. would you, why would you choose, <laughs> why would you choose one that costs four times more? Like this, someone else has bid 480 and they've got no reviews. They've never done any jobs. I think right. I think we've just found out why they've never done any jobs. <laughs> anyway, they haven't they haven't done any they've done no jobs. They've done no jobs. They've got no reviews, and their 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 bid is like way way higher than anyone else's. I think that's right. someone who's probably someone new who's come to freelance and doesn't realize the uh, the economy of it. Yeah, well, it's hard to compete against uh, the open web for software development like that because the price you know especially for going to like commodity things, it's it's hard. And if you're not a specialist or you don't have some kind of reputation that people can bank on, you know, it's just going to be at the lowest price, which is just going to price you out as a, in the U.S. economy unless you live, like, in some cheap, inexpensive area or live at home or something <laughs> or, yeah. or a student. I think, uh, you know, trying to support yourself and a family off that, I think you're, it's not going to work. Yeah, so, so that, the one who's coming the cheapest is, so, is basically someone who actually lives in Italy. So obviously they've got a low cost of living out there as well. Is it, I wonder how expensive is it? In Italy. Well, obviously, there's. I mean, if you're in the city, it's really expensive. But I, I know that in the countryside, it's kind of cheap too. How was it living in Ireland? You lived in Ireland for what, twelve years? You said. Yep, thirteen how years. Was, twelve years. How was the cost of living there comparatively? Um, there's certain things that are kind of high, and other things that are lower. 
Um, I mean, generally, it does feel quite expensive. Dublin certainly feels feels pretty much as expensive, if not more expensive, than London. Wow. Um, just to buy, I mean, the things to kind of compare are like you know your bread and your milk and all that kind of stuff, and that is right. more that's more expensive in Dublin than in London. Right. Yeah. It's funny when we watch like, so Sandy loves watching these HGTV like design shows or like people buying house like house hunters or house hunters international yeah come on and uh, it's funny because when people go oh it's a they're looking for a four-bedroom house in texas it's like two hundred fifty thousand dollars you're like are you kidding me (laughs) if you were in la it would cost you like 1.4 million you know it's just amazing just just you know a few states over you know, like it, how inexpensive it is, or like Florida, or but why? Do, I mean, what stops Atlanta? us from moving there and basically bringing down our cost of living? Well, then you then you have to live there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like people don't want to live there the, as much as they want to live here. But the thing is, like, we, you know, you and I work with all of our clients remotely. So, what difference would it make? Well, it wouldn't make difference in terms of work. It's just a matter of like, where do you enjoy living? I, right. you know. Uh, you know, so I know some people. It depends on where you live in Texas. I mean, you know, you can third place you live on the coast or Austin, which are cool areas. For I've been to I've been to Austin. I've been to the, down on you know the southern part of Texas on the coast, and there's some nice areas. But I don't know. I mean, at least for me, it's like I I really like Pasadena. You know, I don't. Yeah. I think this is an awesome place to live. I've, tra- I've I'm not I'm not a world traveler, but I've traveled enough that I to see that you know Pasadena stacks up pretty well against most places that I've been. So I'm not in a big hurry to like relocate somewhere. You know, it's also was- nice in Eagle Rock, which is just up the road from from where you are. Have you really? been to, yeah, have you been to there's, Eagle there's, Rock? Yeah, there's there's the one place in Eagle Rock that you kind of think of as Eagle Rock, which is the. Um, Okay, this is very inside baseball, but anyway, just quickly. Um, it's like the, the, where the Target shopping mall is, and then that's not very nice. But in between there and you, up in the mountains there of Eagle Rock, yeah, okay, is yeah, really, okay. Yeah. Well, really there are nice. nice there are nice yeah. homes up there. Well, there, but... there's the whole area. Like there's, there's Trader Joe's, and like it's all very cute. There's, it's really, it's, it's becoming huh. gentrified. Yeah, because I would, I mean, whenever I've gone down there, it's just like depressing. Eagle Rock, like, ugh. <laughs> well, it, it's depressing once you, get, once you get up to the Target area. Before the target area, it's real nice. Okay, I, yeah, I've never, yeah, I'm not, not, a, I haven't seen that area. Well, that's the thing about when people come to LA and they say, um, and like, oh, I hate LA. I'm like, well, where have you been in LA? You know, I'm like, it's like, cause there's, there's, there's so diverse. Oh, there's you know, so but, many nice areas and so are many you disgusting in the, areas. Are you yeah. living down in the South Bay and Redondo? Are you in beach living? You're talking about Hollywood? Are you talking about Newport Beach? Are you talking about up in the mountains here? Well, in the foothills, about, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're just. I mean, it's like they're like they're different states. I mean, it's not only is the not only is the um, the culture different, uh, the, is like the the, the 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 landscape is different. The 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 person and it's just it's kind of different. I mean, there are places here you you could swear you're like in Colorado. These kind of like right at the base of the, some of these right of the mountains where you go, you know, where you head up to go skiing. You swear you were like in some little town in Colorado, right? What's well, even like, stranger is. The difference in kind of, I guess, class structure and crime rates. Like, if you, I don't know whether you've ever done this, but have you ever looked on Google Maps, uh, the, 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 the crime statistics map, and basically yeah. compared the areas? If you, if you look around Glendale and then go just, uh, just across the border to um, some, some of the other areas that are on the other side, I've forgotten the name, but it's like there's so many red flags of crime, and then in Glendale there's zero. And it's, it, they're literally like just 10 seconds away from each other like yep. how how can crime be so localized and then it's not doesn't go across the border it's just that's weird 
No, I just people commit crimes near where they live. I guess they, you know, gang fights and gang. Because I think a lot of it is like the is like gang type of stuff. Stuff is done by like young adults and kids and you know teenagers and you know that kind of stuff. But why so, wouldn't you just go across the border into the more upper class neighborhood where where there's more money and steal stuff from there? I just think it's probably <laughs> it's too foreign to you, right? You just don't even know. You don't feel secure there. You don't feel safe. Right? I just think it just seems weird. It just seems like a, like I, you don't even know you don't know the area well enough to to go stealing. That's bizarre. <laughs> Usually, like you're fighting against your rival <laughs> gang, or you're stealing from some place down the street. You know, a lot of these guys probably don't even have cars. You know, and I, I don't know. I mean, because yeah, certainly, like there's a northern part of Pasadena on the uh, north of a highway. It get, can get real sketchy. And it really can be dangerous. It used to be a lot more dangerous. Um, and but then south of the highway, it gets down south of where, and it's like you know super expensive, and there's no crime at all. But you're right; you could walk there in 15 minutes, and you could be in the middle of a crime zone. It's amazing, right? You know what thing was interesting about about uh, it, you know this this there's a place kind of in the southern part of Pasadena called uh, San Marino, which is really wealthy, really really expensive, and these gigantic estates, and it's like where Huntington Gardens are. Is, is that near the um, the Rose Bowl? No, no, it's on the other side of of uh, uh, sort of south east of of pasadena right and you know but it looks like that you know the, the rose bowl there's all these gigantic mansions and stuff oh that's a really nice area yeah well there's a whole another area that was just like four square miles of, of homes like that and the thing what's interesting is you drive back there and you get lost like there are no straight main streets through there like they literally designed it so there are no through streets that people couldn't drive through there easily you, you that was have how to tell, i want to have a look around that area yeah, well, just, e- just email me the name of that place again. I can guarantee you won't be buying a house back there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, well, George has got this plan to um, to buy a plot of land and build a house. Yeah, well, it ain't going to be in that area. Because <laughs> you can buy the plots of land quite cheap and then kind unless, of... Unless somebody comes up and plug you for like 10 or 20 million, then maybe we got a shot. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> well, I think we're pretty much out of material here, so... Yeah. I think we should call it. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.